take your Bibles with me at this time and turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Trace has just read for us from Jeremiah 31, and you will notice immediately in Hebrews chapter 8 that the passage that she read from Jeremiah chapter 31 is quoted in full here in Hebrews chapter 8. So we'll be looking this morning at verses 7 to the end of Hebrews 8. Now the reason why we've read from Jeremiah 31 and the reason why I'm, I've had you open your Bibles to Hebrews 8 this morning is because you will remember in the last two Sunday mornings I pointed out to you that Daniel was in essence having his quiet time reading the prophet Jeremiah. And it was because he read from this prophet that his heart was lifted with hope and he began to pray about the restoration of the people of God to go back to their holy land and to their holy city, Jerusalem. In other words, it was the words of Jeremiah that gave Daniel incredible hope and moved him, motivated him to pray. So he would have, of course, read the whole of what Jeremiah said, but there are probably a few areas in Jeremiah that would have really grabbed his attention. Have you had those experiences before you're reading the Bible? Sometimes, you know, it's just regular reading, and then all of a sudden, something jumps off the page at you. And you know it's as though the Holy Spirit is saying, this one's for you. There's just that moment in time where the Holy Spirit just takes the word that he inspired to be written and applies it significantly to your heart, and it it does something to you. Well, I think that's what happened to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. He's reading. He's reading Jeremiah 25, that Israel's going back to the land after 70 years. He reads that they're going to rebuild the temple, that a restoration will happen. But when he gets to chapter 31, he realizes that this isn't just physical. This, This isn't just a return to the land physically. It's not just moving from point A to point B. And it's not just about building a temple. It's about a renewal that is going to happen in the hearts of God's people. And he reads these words in Jeremiah 31, which are right here for us in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with them before. Go down to verse 10. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people Verse 12, I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. I said to you last Sunday morning that chapter 9, verse 27 of Daniel, which says that he will confirm a covenant with many, and then he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ and what the Lord Jesus Christ did. I know there are many who, who don't interpret the verse in that, in that way, and I understand that. But I'm convinced that's what the verse means. And I said to you last Sunday morning that whenever you and I come to the time of communion where we take bread in our hands and, cup in, and a cup in our hands and we read the words of the Lord Jesus, this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood. That when we do that, that takes us back to exactly what Daniel saw in Daniel 9, that the Messiah, the anointed one, would be cut off, but not for himself, for us, on behalf of us, and that he will confirm a covenant with many, and he will put an end to sacrifice and offering because the single sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross is sufficient to not only cover, but to cleanse all of our sins for all eternity. It is unlike any of the sacrifices that happened in the past, which simply covered sin and were for a period of time and did nothing more than point to the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament sacrifices and offerings. They foreshadow him, they point to him, and Jesus, because he has made this new covenant with us, has put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, when we come to this phrase, I will make a new covenant with you, we would immediately ask ourselves, well, what is this new covenant all about? What is the need for it? Uh, what does this new covenant do? What, what's it all about? What, what, what promises are connected with this new covenant that the Lord has made for us uh, through his son, Jesus? And I want to share just five things from here from Hebrews 8, which really comes from Jeremiah 31. Five things about the new, the new cov- covenant as we come to the table this morning that I trust will encourage your hearts and fill you with joy. And the first is this. The new covenant enacted by Jesus reconciles us to God and with one another. Now, I know you and I normally focus on the death of Christ as being something that blesses us personally in that we would go to the words of Peter that that Christ died for our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. And Peter then goes on to say that the just one suffered for the unjust you and I, to bring us to God. And that is an appropriate focus for us, to recognize that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ's death on the cross, reconciles us to God. It brings us to God. But as we unpack God's word, we begin to discover that the reconciling work of Jesus Christ goes way beyond just you and I being reconciled to God. It's reconciling all of us to God and to each other. Notice the words here. I will make a new covenant, it says here in verse 8, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Remember, Israel and Judah were divided. There was the northern kingdom, there were the southern kingdom. There were tribes in both of the 12 tribes. Israel as a nation had been divided now into two distinct nations, and there was animosity between them. And in the promise of the new covenant that was given to Jeremiah and that Daniel clued into, he began to see and to understand that God was going to reconcile his people to each other again, that he was going to break down this division that existed between them. And in Jeremiah 31, we don't have time to to flip there, but if we did, and if we looked through the whole book, we would discover that, that this reconciling act of God bringing Judah and Israel together again is mentioned at the beginning of Jeremiah, it's mentioned at the end, it's mentioned in the middle in terms of the new covenant that we're talking about here. 
And so I want you to think about this. Think of the New Testament application of this very truth. Because Paul says in Galatians, he says that that we have become the children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say there's no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. Why does he say that? Is he saying that because God literally eliminates those distinctions between us? No, that's not the point. The point is we are all one in Christ Jesus. And so Paul in the book of Ephesians talks about this great division in the ancient world. I mean, friends, you think of the division that we have in Canada right now at this moment in light of all the things that have happened in the past two weeks, the polarizing of opposite sides. Has there ever been a time in Canadian history when Canadians have been more divided from each other than now? It should burden our hearts. But Paul goes back in Ephesians and he talks about this this horrific division of the ancient world, Jew against Gentile. And he says, in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. And he has taken Jew and Gentile and made one new race, one new people, those who believe and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the significance of this truth is brought out emphatically by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, where he gives us instructions as to how we should observe the Lord's Lord's table. And he goes back and he mentions there in 1 Corinthians 11 that there were divisions in the church. He says this shouldn't be. But he acknowledges the division that was there, and very clearly there were some believers in the church who were humiliating others when it came to the Lord's table. There, there, there was discord among themselves, and, and Paul mentions this, and he talks about you can't, you can't eat the bread of the Lord, and you can't drink from the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that we have to examine ourselves before we come to the table. There should be nothing between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are God's reconciled people, and we must live in constant repentance and constant reconciliation with each other. Now, if ever there was a point where there should have been an amen, it was right there. And I don't say that in a joking way. I say that as a rebuke. We need to be God's reconciled people with each other, and the table is the symbol of the unity that we have in the new covenant through Christ. Number two, the new covenant not only reconciles us to God and with each other, but the new covenant transforms us from the inside out, from the inside out. That's what the writer here is getting at, what Jeremiah is getting at in verse 10. When quoting the Lord, he says, this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Now, this is why the new covenant is new, because this didn't happen before. If we go back to Jeremiah again, in Jeremiah chapter 17, Jeremiah laments that what is written on the hearts of the people is their sin. And in Jeremiah 17, he he talks about the heart being deceitful and desperately wicked, and we do not even know or cannot even comprehend how wicked our hearts really are. 
The law wasn't written on our hearts and in our minds. No, sin was. But this is the problem of the old covenant that was made because when the law was given, it was given on tablets of stone, Exodus chapter 31. And it's important that they were given on stone. I think the the stone in some way signifies the permanence of those laws. But on the other hand, it it symbolizes that, 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 that it's not in our hearts. In other words, when the law was given by Moses, as good as that covenant was, that law, God's law, God's moral law, has no internal power to change us. It's completely external. It's something that is demanded of us, but we find no internal power to fulfill it. But the new covenant solves this problem because the new covenant means that God then was, was going to write his, heart, his, his laws in our minds and on our hearts. It's going to become internal. It's from the inside out now. I believe that this is actually a reference to the work of God the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who, who is the agent of carrying out this, this transference of the law to our hearts. Do you remember when Nicodemus came, Nicodemus came to a Jesus and he had all kinds of religious things to talk to Jesus about and Jesus just looked at him and said, Nicodemus, you can't even enter or see the kingdom of God unless you're born from above unless you're born of the Spirit. We call that regeneration. It's what the Holy Spirit does. It's a mysterious operation of the Holy Spirit. The, the, Jesus said to him, the wind blows where it wants to, and you, you hear the sound of the wind, and, and, but you don't know where the wind is coming from, and you don't know where the wind is going. So it is with everyone that is born of the Spirit. This is a mysterious operation of God in our hearts in which he puts his law on our minds and he puts his law, he writes his law on our hearts. You see, the new covenant brings the law from the outside and places the law now on our inside. The new covenant does not abolish the law. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus moves the law from being external to us to being internal to our hearts. You see, the old covenant law that was given obedience was the was the prior condition before you could enter into a covenant relationship with God but now in the new covenant obedience is the promised blessing why because there's a change in our hearts if I say the name Dr. Christian Bernard, many of you, especially if you work in the medical field, you will know immediately who that was, the famous doctor from Johannesburg, South Africa, who performed the first heart transplant. After he became famous, he continued to do this operation with many others, and there was a fellow physician who needed a new heart, and Dr. Bernard helped him with the transplant of a new heart. When the operation was over and this physician had recovered, Bernard said to him, would you like to see your old heart? Imagine that. Imagine that. Probably the first man in history to look at his old heart. And uh, he took him into a room and there was his heart in a bottle and they exchanged some conversation about medical matters and surgical matters. And then the doctor took the 
bottle in his hands and he said this, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. Hmm. Isn't that powerful line? This is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. But this is what Jesus does. He changes our hearts. He makes us a new creation. He writes his law on our hearts. We become in the new birth, in regeneration. We become partakers of the nature of God himself. The new covenant transforms us from the inside out. Third, the new covenant creates a belonging relationship with God, a belonging relationship. After he says in verse 10, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, he then adds, I will be their God and they will be my people. You, you've heard that line before. I mean, that, that line is all throughout the Bible from beginning to end. First reference is in Genesis chapter 17 where God makes the covenant with Abraham and says, I will be your God, he says to him. You will have me, Abraham. And then in Exodus 7, after Israel had been in captivity for 400 years, God speaking through the prophet Moses said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And this promise keeps getting repeated over and over again and it culminates in Revelation chapter 21 at the end of time itself where God in the holy city comes down as it were and heaven and earth merge together as one and in revelation 21 it says they will be his, we will be his people and god will dwell among us and he will be our god this is the promise of belonging not just a casual relationship not a possessive relationship in the wrong sense of possessiveness but a possessive relationship in the right sense of possessiveness. In the new covenant, then, Jesus promised that, that, that God is really going to be our God. Do you realize, friends, that the greatest gift that God has given to us through Jesus Christ is that he has given us himself. He is our God. We possess him. He possesses us. We have a friendship and a fellowship with the triune God. We have union with God. We have communion with God. All because of Christ. The New Covenant goes on, and in this passage, the New Covenant, it tells us so much more, but I'm trying to limit our thoughts here this morning. But the New Covenant also promises us forgiveness and forgetfulness. Notice forgetfulness is in quotes. Verse 12, for I will forgive their sins and will remember their sins no more. An amazing promise that is given to us here. I want you to go back now in Hebrews 8 to verse 7. Go back to verse 7. These are not the words of, of Jer Jeremiah. These are the words of the man who wrote the Hebrews for us. But they're significant words, verse 7, because they're used as a preface to the prophecy, the promise that Jeremiah gives. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, that is the Old Testament, the old covenant that God had made, the giving of the law, if there had been nothing wrong with that, no place would have been sought for another. There would have been no need for a new covenant to be made 
if the first one was perfect. Now, the next line tells us where the imperfection lied. And the imperfection wasn't with the covenant itself. The imperfection is not with God's law. Notice what he says. But God found fault with the people. That's where the fault was. The fault isn't with God's holy law. The problem is with our sinful hearts. The problem is how to deal with sin. In Hebrews, if we had time, we would see that the writer here is saying that a better covenant was needed, not because the old covenant wasn't good, but the better, a better covenant is needed because a better covenant can deal with the problem of sin which the old covenant couldn't. You remember when Paul talked about reading the law in Romans 7? And he talks about reading the law, and he talks about how the law is holy and the law is good. But he said, the law took advantage of me, he said. Because when I read, you shall not covet, he said, all of a sudden I realized just how much I really covet. It's like, it's like, it's like putting a sign up on a door, adults only. Who wants to go there when it's adults only? Everyone who isn't an adult. Because the law itself actually in some way motivates us. It's, it puts a spark within us to do something that is contrary to it. Because that is the problem in our hearts. The old covenant tried to deal with, with sins and tried to deal with sins by all of the sacrifices that were offered on the altar within the holy of holies and the temple. But the writer to the Hebrews tells us that these offerings, these sac sacrifices, they only covered sins. That was important, but it just simply covered them. They, the, the sins were never completely forgiven because they were never completely, truly forgotten. The sacrifices never paid for sins. They only pointed to the one who would, pain, would pay for sins. And Jesus Christ has made the one and final sacrifice for our sins. Once for all, he is paid in full. Now notice here that the forgiveness of our wickedness is tied to remember their sins no more. It's tied to the memory of God. That's a strange line. I mean, if God is God and he knows all things and he is omniscient, then of course God knows all things and God will never forget anything. God's not a forgetful God. He doesn't walk around saying, where did I leave my keys? That's not God. He knows every sin I ever committed, but there is a sense in which he remembers them no more. It's an incredible line. Because of Christ's payment, because Christ's payment for sin was so complete, and because Christ's death for us on the cross for our sin was so comprehensive, a satisfaction, a complete satisfaction has been made for our sins. God is completely satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ for all of our sins. Not some of your sins. Not for all of your sins except for the one you continue to struggle with. Not for all of your sins but the one you are the most ashamed of. But for all of our sins, and therefore it is impossible for God to remember our sins no more. Hallelujah. Some of you are still plagued by this. 
And the enemy brings up your past and throws it in your face and it discourages you and it gets you down or you fall again, you struggle with it and you're plagued by it. Listen, he doesn't remember your sins. So why should you? The way the new covenant deals with the problem of sin is through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus claimed that all of the new covenant was fulfilled in him. Jesus is the new covenant himself. He is the mediator of this blessing. All of our sin was laid on him. Therefore, all of our sin is forgiven and forgotten. And finally, the new covenant is endless in its duration. Notice verse 12 says, I will remember their sins no more. No more. There's, there's a mark of eternity there in that word, that phrase, no more. And it, if we had time to go back to Jeremiah 31, you would see in Jeremiah 31, after this new covenant promise, which is quoted here, is, is given, the Lord goes on then and he talks about how he has set the sun in the sky and the moon and the stars and how he's put all of creation in order. And he basically says that just as I've done all that and the laws of nature are enforced, so I will never go back on the covenant, the new covenant that I have made with God's people. The new covenant is reliable. It is, it, 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 as, as the laws of nature that are fixed, they will never change. Now, it's hard to grasp all this because when you and I read about the covenants in God's word, it sounds like the covenants are like contracts. And you know what a, con- a contract is. You have your part to play, and then the person you sign the contract with, they have their part. And you both have to be faithful to the contract that has been made. And so God has his part of the, co- the contract, and we have our part. <laughs> the, problem, the problem is you and I can never keep it. We break the contract over and over again. And so on, at a human level, if I continue to break the contract between God and me, then that means that the contract is null and void. It is over. But in the mystery of the grace of God, God through Christ continues to keep the covenant relationship with us even though we have broken it. How do we explain this? And the only explanation is the covenant is permanent because Jesus keeps it on our behalf. You see, the covenant was made between Jesus and God. Did you hear me? Did you hear what I just said? The covenant was made between Jesus and God. In a sense, the covenant wasn't made between you and I and God. It was made between Jesus and God, and Jesus keeps the covenant for us. His covenant-keeping counts for us the covenant isn't a bargain that, you and, that, that we and God have entered into. No, the new covenant is a blood bond between the Father and the Son on our behalf. And because we are in covenant relationship with Jesus, because we are in Christ, therefore this covenant can never be broken because Jesus keeps the covenant for us. Kent Hughes, who is the former pastor of College Church in Wheaton, 
um, told a story of a, a small village in the United States and a, a doctor who had been uh, very professional in his skill and uh, devoted to his patients and a devoted believer, a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, that he passed away. And shortly after his death, his books were examined, and he had written in his books the names of certain patients that he had, and in red ink, he had written besides some of their names, um, forgiven, too poor to pay, too poor to pay. After the doctor had died, the, his wife was not of the same mindset as he was. And so she insisted that all of the debts of all of these patients would have to be settled and paid. And she took them to court. And in the courtroom, the books of the doctor were open, and the judge looked at the books, and he noticed these words in red ink, forgiven, too poor to pay. And he asked the wife, he said, is this your husband's handwriting? She said, yes, it is. And then the judge said this, then not a court in the land can touch those he has forgiven. Hallelujah. This is what Christ has done for us. Jesus, in the ink of his blood, has said beside your name, forgiven, too poor to pay. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? The scripture asks. You can't do it. You can't bring a charge. Because it says, forgiven, too poor to pay. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. Get these words. Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where is the love of God? It is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And where are we? We are in Christ. So nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now skip over to chapter 9, to the final verse of chapter 9, verse 28. It says here, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away sin. There's the new covenant operation that Jesus made. He was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And notice the next line. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Daniel chapter 9 points out that the Messiah, the anointed one, would be cut off and that he would make a covenant for us. When Jesus came, he declared that the year of Jubilee was now inaugurated with his coming. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach. This is the year of the Lord's favor, he said. With the first coming of Christ, the year of Jubilee started and at the return of the Lord Jesus, he will consummate this wonderful jubilee because what Jesus fulfilled when he first came, he will bring in its fullness when he returns again. 
So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time. Not to bear our sins, he's already done that. But to bring salvation for us who are waiting for him. Amen. Amen. Oh, that was great. There are so many stories to tell over the course of these past 50 years, and we're looking forward to hearing many more of them in the coming days here at West Highland. Uh, During our announcement time, uh, reference was made to our benevolent offering, which we normally take on a communion Sunday, and there are plates uh, on the back tables. And so if you would like to contribute to that so that you would enable the church to minister to people in need, that would be a wonderful uh, gift to give today. Would you stand, please? And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, And may he work in each of us that which is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.